What does a uh, hyena bring on a flight? Hmm. Carry-on bag. Get it? Because carry-on. Because it's like... Yes. The, 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 the dead stuff. Yeah, the dead stuff. But it That's... sounds like carry-on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the point. Get it? Hey, everyone. Devin Boker here. And Richard. And you are listening to The Wildlife, a podcast from two brothers that explores nature's untold stories, wild secrets, and the lives of the people who study them. You know what this is? Hmm. It's episode 59. 59 without Ryan Reynolds. Wow. Yeah. All, all that we're asking. I'm so disappointed. Is just an hour of your time to compare and contrast Hugh Jackman's Wolverine with that of real life wolverines um and and i, I just have to say I, I don't know we might have to switch gears here soon and just go for hugh jackman and, and then maybe maybe that's a stepping stone we can just use hugh jackman to get to ryan what's your contingency plan if ryan says yes but also refuses to talk about that subject that has been your idea that won't happen that won't that won't happen because like no way it's kind of silly what? Silly? How dare you? Silly. I don't do silly. Before we get into it, big shout out and I love you to our patrons at patreon.com slash the wildlife, our other half of the symbiotic relationship that is us. Biggest of thank yous to <sighs> Andrew Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Cyber, Brenda Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancox, Magda Pell, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vigran Boligi. Dang it. Gonna try to do this in one breath. Biggest of thank yous to Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trinkle, Angela Cyber, Bridget Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancox, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Boligi, Whitney Vanderbeer, Zach Static, Abel Blinsky, Kimia, Kim Drillet, Karen Bergman, Terry Peterson, and Charlie Rodriguez. Boom. Got it. We could not do this without you. You know that sound. It's haunting. Imagine being in the dark. Now, you might be able to see the stars, sure, maybe more vividly than you ever have before, but there's also the fact that you're alone, and there's this this sound. Maybe you hear the low rumble of a nearby lion. Maybe you feel the bass in your chest from a nearby elephant. But this sound, that is one that will send shivers up your spine. Hyenas have been painted as villains, demons ridden by witches, grave-robbing ghouls, and the embodiment of all things vile by people for thousands of years. But then there's this. Okay, well, I would just put in a plug for hyenas being the coolest animals on the planet. They're really weird. They, they appear to violate a lot of the basic rules of mammalian biology, like what makes a male a male and a female a female. And uh, yeah. for that reason, they're just like studying an endless puzzle. There's also the fact that when we first posted on Twitter that, that this was an upcoming episode, when we, when we hinted at it with a very blurry picture, the amount of people who, who replied and not only guessed right away, exactly what it was kind of defeating the purpose but they guessed right away and and then were just excited and the amount of hyena biologists that we heard from who who posted pictures of hyenas that they work with and and talked about 
how excited they were to, to hear a positive spin on hyenas. That's what we're exploring today. Much like in our episode on sharks last week, what is at the root of such a divide and how culture and science view these animals? Our guide today is none other than the Jane Goodall of Hyenas, Michigan State University's Dr. Kay Holkamp. Kay has been the front and center of one of the longest running studies on mammals ever, a a study that has accumulated more than 30 years of data. She's a faculty member in the Department of Integrative Biology and is the director of the Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior Program at MSU. She received her PhD in Psychobiology at the University of California, Berkeley, She's a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her and her students have published more than 150 scholarly articles, and her honors include being elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, being named a fellow of the Animal Behavioral Society, receiving a Merriam Award for the American Society of Mammalogists, and like just a bunch more. (laughs) Fair warning. Today's episode, um, this is the tricky bit about doing a podcast about wildlife in that things come up that aren't inherently inappropriate. Your discretion, if you are a parent with kids or something like that, is is what we're going to rely on here because, you know, there are parts of anatomy that, that will be discussed and parts of how that anatomy is used. And so while it is all very scientific and very fascinating stuff, we understand if, if you've got a four-year-old in the back of the car, you might not want them to hear the repetition of certain words because then it will become something in their repertoire. So we totally get it. We talk Lion King, arch nemesis, puzzle boxes, intelligence, teamwork, why it sucks to be a male hyena, how females have overthrown the patriarchy, aggression, laughs, and oddly, a lot about something called a pseudopenis. So grab a cup of coffee and join your family in violently tearing apart a gazelle carcass as we explore the truth about hyenas. I guess before we get to it, a quick point of clarification for today's episode. Uh, right now, we're discussing the spotted hyena. It's one of four hyena species in the family Hyenidae. So they're, they're not considered anywhere near dogs. So what are they? They do look very dog-like. To me, they look sort of like a cross between a bear and a dog, but they're actually in their very own family in the mammalian order Carnivora. So, you know, there's a dog family and a cat family. Well, there's a hyena family, and it's... Uh, more closely related to cats than to dogs, but its most close living relatives are things like uh, mongooses and civets. There's something of a souped-up mongoose. More related to that. I mean, like as like a uh, as a guinea pig is to a capybara. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go with that. That's that's close enough. The other species are. Let's see. Um, there's also the striped hyena that lives more in northern Africa and parts of the Middle East. At times, it lived in Europe. The spotted hyena lives across parts of Central Africa down into southern Africa. There is um, a pretty good record of uh, some form of spotted hyena occurring in Europe and Asia because they're, they're spotted 
hyenas that people have drawn on cave walls. And um, there's reason to believe that isn't the same species that we see now in Africa because this, this current species just appears in the fossil record for the first time less than a million years ago. It's really evolutionarily brand new. So it was presumably closely related species of hyena that lived in, in these caves with people and probably preyed on people. Another species is the aardwolf, which is freaking adorable, just have to say. And then there is the brown hyena that lives almost exclusively in Southern Africa. A bit of etymology. So hyena actually comes from Greek for pig, which I don't fully understand. It, it makes that one scene in Lion King kind of funny. I think it might be because like boars have the bristly hairs along their back and hyenas have the bristly hairs along their back. And maybe it's because they eat a lot. I don't know that they were They humorous. do eat like crazy. Yeah. Like borderline upsetting amounts. So, okay. A second ago, we were talking about how um, hyenas are their own thing. They're in the family hyenidae, not canids, not felines. They are their own thing. Now, if you were to look at one, you might not guess that. You might think it's a dog or, or at least closely related, but it's not. And that's, that's one of my favorite things about them is because they are a fantastic example of something that's called convergent evolution or, or homologous structures. Think like wings. Butterflies have wings. Bats have wings. Birds have wings. I mean, even pterod pterodons had wings, but none of those are related. Not closely, at least very, very incredibly distantly, but that's that's about it. Or in the ocean, certain body forms work, having fins, a tail that can flap, a dorsal fin. Sharks are not related to dolphins or whales, yet they share similar structures. If you are a carnivore, a predator that has to chase after its food, there is a certain body structure that works. And that's why we see the same structure in wolves, coyotes, hyenas, and things like the Tasmanian tiger, which is super cool because those have been extinct for a while, but they are a marsupial, or were a marsupial, more closely related to kangaroos. They evolved in isolation from, from canids and hyenas. So the fact that their structure is so similar. They're, they're very dog-like, but with some stripes, they can open their mouth like 13 inches, um, which is kind of horrifying. You can see some really old footage of, of them actually alive. But it's just an amazing example of how when nature has a, a void, how natural selection will fill it, and how frequently the solutions that, it's, that it finds end up being exactly the same. So for all the diversity that there is on the planet, there's so much similarity because we're really all here on the same planet. So Richard, when you think of hyena, I guess, especially before talking about any of this, what came to mind? Um, just usually just the, their characteristics, the most popular, um, you know, gonna of course think of like Lion King or yeah. um, their, their trademark laugh Yeah. or you know, visualize them in a, in a whole pack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like uh, how, I mean, if you've ever seen really any BBC nature documentary, especially like there's the one, I think last year, Dynasties, and there's like the famous scene from it where uh, there was a male lion kind of off on its own being surrounded by hyenas, and it was like 
we don't know if he'll make it out alive. And it was all very dramatic. And of course, the unifying thing there is hyenas are often painted as the what? The villain. The villain. I mean, like, you're supposed to root for their prey for some reason. Yeah. I mean, that happens with so, with so many predators, though. It does happen with a lot of predators, yet at the same time, like, people love lions. People love tigers. I mean, they yeah, they get let off the hook because they're they're cats. Yeah. You know, we have we have pet cats. Yeah. You know, they act like house cats, so people are like, oh, it's just a big old kitty laying in and a they, box, and they get like <laughs> then they get let off the hook. But I mean, every time I see a nature documentary or something like that, you're like, oh no, the goat's trying to get away from the fox. Oh. Oh, I know, right? You know, like. Hmm. This, this will be dude. the last day for this baby rabbit. And it's like, okay. Okay. I mean, it's also nature. Someone's got to eat, okay? Someone should do... How have you killed in your life? Someone should do a a documentary like that, but like the perspective of like... So like a deer, deer's eating on a willow a willow twig. <laughs> the, like the, I've probably... The willow twig's like... But in, anyway, I guess the so, I mean, yes, you could you could you could transpose some of this hatred to, to other animals too. I mean, for for all the love that there is out there for wolves, there's also a lot of hate. For all the love for coyotes, there's also a lot of hate. I think more unanimously in culture, you see a lot of hate surrounding hyenas and and not so much love, unless it's from people who are familiar with them, people who study them. But even the people who live with them aren't necessarily super fond of them. Uh, A man by the name of Stephen E. Glickman published a paper in 1995 looking at why positive attitudes are so at odds with general culture when it comes to hyenas. And of course, Lion King is is a great example of this. I mean, hyenas, other than Scar, are the great villain of the story. They end up presumably killing Scar at the end anyway. Uh, they're, They're looked at as being dopey, vile, scavengers basically qualities that if you were to look at a human and say "Mm, i don't know that i necessarily like those if if we can transpose that onto another animal uh then then we're more likely to not like that animal and and that's what's so confusing because you you see those traits and you're immediately like okay well yeah i i understand the disdain i mean with the way humans act themselves, they're going to root for an animal that is more like them. And they're going to see the scavenger or an animal that they think is dumb and not have nearly as much respect for it. But like, those aren't even real traits. Like they're still skilled hunters and they're pretty smart. Yeah. So like, this paper looked at a lot of different things. I mean, it looked at it looked at cultural references and pop cultural references. I mean, way, way, way back, even to ancient Greece. Aristotle did a lot of trying to defend hyenas and, and dispel certain things, although a lot of what he ended up concluding still was incorrect. But, I mean, he even wrote of them as exceedingly fond of putrid flesh. Hemingway, you know, big man's man, I guess, a lot of hunting and stuff. He referred to them as a hermaphroditic, self-eating devourer of the dead. And Roosevelt called them a single mixture of abject cowardice and the utmost ferocity. Self-eating. Self-eating. 
so that's that's uh, that's kind of what what we're hoping to do today is is do some convincing. We want to convince you that what you think that you know of hyenas, what culture thinks that it knows of hyenas, is actually pretty backwards. Maybe some of it is true, but but at least the reasons behind it, once you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, they actually become really fascinating and, and an admiration for hyenas and, and the struggle and their their lives is really the only thing that can come of it. But first, as always, let's get to know our guest. Have you always been interested in science? I have, ever since I was a little kid, actually. I thought for a long time I wanted to be a marine biologist, but then I uh, went to Africa and fell in love with it. That's something I, somewhere I've always wanted to go, something I've always wanted to do. And you're not the first person we've talked to lately who has uh, started said you know that they wanted to be a marine biologist at the start. It seems like there's two. It's either they wanted to be a marine biologist right away or a vet. What was your first real connection to nature? Uh, the whole time I was growing up, my parents were big outdoors people. And so we'd spend a lot of time camping and just hiking through the Missouri woods and floating down Missouri rivers. And, uh, you know, my dad took us on a lot of trips to the Rockies and elsewhere in the United States and sure. um, just been dealing with nature the whole time I was, I've been cognizant as a human being, I think. What advice would you give um, a, a young, you know, younger you or someone interested in getting into the field of wildlife? What advice would you give them? I think the most important thing is actually to, you know, apprentice yourself to a research project. I have lots mm-hmm. of um, students, both undergraduates and people who've gotten their undergraduate degrees come, you know, serve as research assistants on my project. And, you know, you don't get rich doing it, but it yeah. gives you the experience to... Um, get your foot in the door working, you know, in a research context with animals, if, if that's what you like to do. So um, I really think that's the most important thing anybody can do these days. Sure. And when did you decide on hyenas? Um, that was a long time ago now, actually. Um, I, I had been uh, working on other other types of mammals. You know, I did my PhD work on these wonderful ground squirrels that live in California. And then I was um, all set to work on dolphins at the University of California at Santa Cruz. But um, I got foiled there because uh, suddenly the uh, a family donated a lot of money to overhaul the marine tanks. Mm. And so I didn't actually, I wasn't able to do anything more with dolphins. And at that point um, I got an opportunity to um possibly study hyenas. I was invited to go on a trip to Africa with a fellow who had done his PhD on them and just to see if I liked the work. And uh, if I did, then I was going to come home and write a grant and see if I could get money to run the project. And that's exactly what happened. I fell in love with the animals and I turned out to be pretty good at it. So here I am. They're, they're really interesting because I feel like most of the time when you see them in any kind of pop culture, even on documentaries, you know, nature documentaries that are about you know, the uh, African wildlife, they always end up being portrayed as like a villain. They're, they're conniving, they're immoral, they're scavenging, they're dirty, they're, and I'm, I don't know what it is about hyenas that, that makes people feel that way. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I actually think historically, um, the African bush is, is a very scary place at night and Africa's the only place spotted hyenas still occur. And so um, uh, it seems to me what people still do and have done historically, both uh, the original people who lived on the continent of Africa and all the colonists from Europe and elsewhere who Mm -hmm. 
came in to settle there, they would everybody locks themselves up into a secure place at night and they go out at dawn and they come across a scene that looks like this. You see a big handsome male lion eating a, you know, uh, half half consumed wildebeest or zebra or something, and there are a bunch of bloody hyenas sort of hanging around, lying around and skulking in the periphery. And everybody assumes because hyenas really don't look like they can hunt very well. Uh, that the lion must have made this kill. But if you're the hyena biologist and you're out there a couple hours earlier, you see actually the hyenas usually make the kill <laughs> and the lions steal it from them. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things. They just don't look like, um, you know, fast, graceful hunters, but they're actually very good hunters. So um, hmm. it surprises people. So as Dr. K. Holkamp has mentioned, and as we were talking about earlier, there are there are tons of myths surrounding hyenas. And one of them that persisted for a very, very, very long time was of them being hermaphroditic. And part of that is because the females do have um, roughly an eight inch long, can be retractable if need be to, to prevent a male from mating with them that they don't want to mate with. Um, but it's it's called a pseudopenis. From the outside, it very much looks like a penis. And, and it even looks like they have a scrotum, but it's actually swollen labial tissue. So they very much, the females even, look like males to the untrained eye. Yeah, no, it's been literally believed for thousands of years until the end of the 19th century when somebody finally thought to dissect one. The Both males and females have very strange genitalia where they have a fully erectile or reproductive organ and on the, what the female has looks just like the male's phallus. And so it fooled people, but then they would see, you know, a female with very heavy milk laden udders coming back to the den to nurse her cubs. And then she would encounter another hyena and develop a sort of amazing phallic erection. And they decided she must be both sexes at once. But um, in fact, internally female spotted hyenas look pretty much like average female mammals. So sure. It's, it's just this weird external anatomy that um, really fooled people. So as you can imagine, trying to give birth through something like that, birth itself is already a, a difficult task, okay? Um, birth in humans is a, is a fairly difficult task as compared to other things. But if, when you look at hyenas, they're having to give birth through an elongated tube. Lichen, you can liken it to giving birth through a soda straw. I mean, it's that tiny. And that's immediately going to cause several issues. One, the further distance that, that the baby has to travel, the more risk there is of something going wrong. And in the case of hyenas, their umbilical cord is rather short. It's not long enough to reach all the way out of the pseudopenis. So therefore, there's actually quite a few pups. Some estimates say as much as 65% that die during childbirth. And the whole process of giving birth tears their pseudopenis and it has to reform with scar tissue. Now that makes it easier for further birthing, but still. Probably makes it a lot more painful. Yeah, I would imagine. So if it causes that sort of like infant mortality, then why is that trait still there? Like, why is that a good ad adaptation for them? Why is something like that still pass on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, really to understand that, and that's kind of, one of the ultimate questions, it's not the, there's actually a lot to learn about hyenas, but it kind of leads us in a roundabout way to understanding a lot about their very nature. So we really need to understand the life of a hyena first. 
But uh, real quick, we need to take a quick break. Hi there from the Hikopper's crew. Hikopper's mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind, and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves, and to nature. From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails. Hey everybody, this is Devin, and um, we're planning something kind of special. I don't know, maybe it's a matter of perspective, but we are working on a bonus episode, and by working on, I mean accruing lots of spicy things, including an incredibly hot sauce and a oddly cherry-flavored ghost pepper gummy, reaper peppers, all sorts of things, because when we hit 30 ratings on Apple Podcasts, which we are only two away from, we are doing a bonus episode on the nature of spicy. So if you are listening in iTunes or, or Apple Podcast, go ahead, leave us a rating, leave us a review. You know, honest one, five stars are appreciated, but uh, whatever, whatever you feel in your heart would be an accurate rating. And when we hit 30, we are going to torture ourselves for your own entertainment. Yes, we are doing an episode about the nature of spicy while trying to eat very spicy things, increasingly spicy things throughout the episode. So who knows how that will end up? Hopefully none of us die, but we're going to give it a shot because uh, in part you asked for it. Also, just in general, wherever you're listening, whether it's uh, CastBox or Stitcher or wherever, leave us a rating. It really helps to move us up in the rankings. And also, it just helps us to know if we're on the right track, if, if we're doing what you want, if what you are hearing is the kind of thing that you want to be hearing. If we are doing a good job, we need that validation. So uh, wherever you're listening, leave us a rating. It helps us out, but it also helps us you out so in a way you're really just helping yourself for example you've probably heard that they're scavengers right well yeah yeah but as it turns out they're actually phenomenal hunters well they often um hunt in groups uh, particularly large difficult prey like zebras mount a very good defense and things like buffalo and giraffe are just challenging for an individual hyena to bring down, but more often they're hunting on their own. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the average hunting group size is only 1.5. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the they are descended from scavengers, so they can take advantage of carrion if they come across it. But there just isn't much carrion lying around, you know, in, in almost any habitat these yeah. days that I can think of. So we find that our hyenas kill 95% of the prey animals that they consume. Oh, wow. So they only scavenge 5%, and that percentage varies across the African continent from 95% down to only 65% of hunted prey. But in every single case, the majority of their diets are hunted rather than scavenged. Speaking of things popularized by pop culture and stuff, I mean, is there any truth to this whole, like the thing that Lion King took with and took and ran with, the, uh, the story of lions and hyenas as like arch nemeses? Yeah, they really don't care much for one another. And... Um, you know, there's a lot of 
competition between the two species because their diets are are very similar. It's you know something like eighty percent overlap. So um, anytime either species has killed a prey animal, um, if the other species detects it, there's usually uh, an effort made to bring in allies and um, com compete for access to it. And so uh, often we see when hyenas make a kill, uh, they lions descend on them right away and they're big enough and strong enough that they can chase them away unless the hyenas end up with big groups, in which case they can sometimes drive the, hyena, the lions back off the prey. Hmm. They can sometimes come across lions who've killed something and they can sometimes steal food from the lions, but that just doesn't happen nearly as much as lions stealing food from hyenas. What do, what do you call a group of hyenas, I guess, first off, because now I'm curious. The, the first guy to go study them systematically uh, had come directly from Scotland, and so he was able to call them whatever he wanted, and he named them clans. Ah. <laughs> so even though it's really more than a single family, a group of hyenas um, that, that defends a common territory and that reared their cubs all together at a, at a single communal den, that's called a clan, even though there are multiple families living within the clan. And so tell me more about the uh, the social dynamic. I mean, how, how are they set up? Well, the society is not like the society of any other mammalian carnivore you've ever heard of. It does nothing like a wolf pack or a lion pride or a mongoose group. Um, it's actually much more like a, a troop of monkeys or baboons. And so the groups are very big. Um, most carnivores live in little tiny groups that are composed mainly of close kin, at least within mm -hmm. members of one sex. Uh, spotted hyenas are actually... Um, they have close kin in their groups, but they're also competing and cooperating with animals who don't share essentially any genes with them at all. Something that is, um, you know, one of the one of the biggest persisting myths about hyenas is that they're that they're dumb. Uh, whether it's from pop culture, movies, cartoons, or or people making the assumption that well, if they are scavengers, it means that they're not smart enough to hunt or something like that. But they're actually really, really intelligent and have actually very much shifted the very thought behind the origins of intelligence. And so um, they have the same kind of social dynamics that monkeys do. The societies are structured by linear dominance hierarchy, where if you are high ranking, you get priority of access to food and other resources. And if you're low ranking, you try and avoid the competition and just go off by yourself and try and hunt out. They can tell individuals apart. They can tell individuals apart by sound. They can count. So let's say that you're a hyena and you're out with your group and you hear an unfamiliar hyena call from a distance and then you hear another and then you hear another. It can recognize if maybe that was three individuals and then say, oh, there's only two of us. Maybe let's not head that direction because we're outnumbered. They're also exceptional at teamwork. They have an intense social hierarchy. These are all hallmarks of intelligence. Yeah, they live in fission fusion society, so they don't, you know, it's not like they're all together at once. It's more like a, a lion pride insofar as the animals go apart and come together. This is typical of, of animals that live at the top of food pyramids because um, they, there's so much competition for the limited food that's available that they often have to separate to feed themselves. And that's what especially low-ranking hyenas do. They just go off away from the higher-ranking ones, so at least they get a few minutes alone. And in a few minutes, if they kill something, they can eat about half their body weight in wow. <laughs> pretty pretty short order so if they if they do this kind of fission fusion thing and they coming back together i mean for what reasons do they come back together is it for reproduction and stuff or 
Well, they, they really don't need to form very big groups for, for reproducing. They also don't really need to form big groups for hunting together. The average hunting group size is 1.5 hyenas. So there's a lot of singleton hunts going on. Mm. Uh, they, they will hunt things like zebra and buffalo and giraffe in, in groups. But um, yeah, they come back together to defend resources. So they tend to live in open habitat. And um, not only other neighboring hyena clans can sometimes see the kills that they make, uh, but also lions and other large carnivores. And so they, they form big groups when they're interacting with lions or, or neighboring hyenas in particular. What kind of ways do they um, interact or, or communicate with each other? I mean, is the laugh, is it, because it's a haunting sound, is that some sort of communication between them? Yeah, we call it a giggle because it sounds very much like a hysterical human giggle. And um, it has, it's typically associated with um, a high level of excitement. So you often see it if one hyena has grabbed a piece of food from a carcass, for example, a leg joint or whatever, and somebody else wants it. So the, the animal starts chasing the, the hyena who has the, the limb joint and that the animal holding the limb joint will giggle like crazy and run away. And um, they just, they do, you know, I think it's indicating that they are, um, excited but they want to be left alone (laughs) (laughs) so the uh walk us through a little bit on the you know the just the reproduction and the birth sort of just the life cycle if you were to start in the beginning sure yeah female hyenas give birth year-round they start having babies when they're about three years old and uh, they typically will have um, a litter of either one or two cubs every 18 months or so Mm -hmm. and they they nurse their babies for a long time typically about 13 months in our population a little bit longer in some other ones where prey isn't quite as abundant as it is in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the mother will um, keep her cubs at a communal den for the first, almost the first year of the cub's life. And she'll just um, commute back and forth to the den a couple times a day to nurse her cub. And the cubs, when there are no adults around, go into the den. The den holes are too small for adults to enter. So they're safe in there, but things like pythons can go in if they want to. Um, so we do lose some cubs that way. And then uh, once a f- female actually weans her cub, then cubs, um, well, at this point, they're traveling around the home range with the mom, typically, um, sometimes on their own, but more often just following their mother around to, so that they're learning the territory from what we can tell. Mm-hmm. And they start interacting with other members of the society, and they go through puberty when they're about two years old, a little bit more, and start uh, males are, and females are both physiologically competent to breed then, but usually an, another few years go by before they actually start breeding. Uh, speaking about that social hierarchy, females are king. They run the place. And they're incredibly, incredibly aggressive. It sucks to be a male hyena. You are picked on, you are beaten, you are booed off stage. Yeah, we have colleagues who don't think that's true, but but boy, I think from the minute they're born, you know, they come out of the womb with females behaving more aggressively than males, (laughs) in my experience, and they continue to do that throughout their lives. It's actually the case that, um, you know, later on during pregnancy, but before birth, clearly, uh, the the body is is flooded with testosterone and, and androgens that, well, I mean, you know, kind of increase aggression and, and the, the need to assert dominance, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you might be wondering, does this relate to the odd female reproductive anatomy as well? Is it that this rush of hormones is somehow the cause of this odd 
phallus. And no, actually, they have done studies where they have done testosterone blockers in, in mothers. So therefore, those things weren't uh, inflaming or rushing the system or, or crossing the womb into the fetus. And nevertheless, they still had that object. They were less aggressive, but they still had the pseudopenis. But it's not just that females are aggressive, it's that they must be aggressive. But how, how does that help? Again, just like with the pseudo penis, how does that help the female? Well, yeah, because it does seem kind of counterintuitive. Like if you're aggressive and nasty and mean. Like aggressive yet also <laughs> pack animals. Yeah, like it's it's a complicated thing. You know, I think it's no coincidence that this whole suite of traits has only ever evolved once in the history of animals. Uh, it's very, very unusual. And um, I think that the, basically these animals descended less than a million years ago from a, a, an ancestral hyena that was specially adapted for cracking open bones because there were periods of you know, Earth's evolutionary history when there was lots of carrion lying around. And so there was a, a, a big niche or series of niches available to, to animals who were scavenging. And so what you need to, to scavenge and break open bones is a great massive skull that can exert tremendous bite forces when you break down. I mean, we've seen them break open giraffe and femurs and elephant bones. I mean, it's amazing what they can break with their jaws. Um, take, took off the whole exhaust system of my car once. I mean, they can really do number <laughs> on pretty much anything that they bite. So, um, you know, I think that the odd characteristic here is that these animals can't defend their food unless they have allies. They can't defend either individual carcasses or the piece of real estate over which the, their mobile prey go back and forth. They can't do that without allies, um, so other group mates, but they also um, are trying to rear cubs in an environment where, given these massive skulls that an adult hyena has, youngsters are trying to compete for limited food resources, and um, they're competing with animals who can tear off and consume food much faster than they can. And I mean, we've seen young hyenas take 20 minutes to eat a, a dog biscuit made of compressed cereal. So um, meanwhile, you know, a grown-up hyena can break open a cow femur and completely consume it in, in a few minutes. So really very different capabilities. And I think that without help from your mother, she's compensating for the slow development of their skull. And so she basically keeps helping them until her cubs have a fully mature skull, which really doesn't happen until well after they can start having their own babies. It's, it's a very slow process. And to understand it, you really got to look inside. Females have limited eggs. They have a limited supply. And if there's high birth risk, that means that they have to be incredibly careful with the mates that they pick. They have to be incre incredibly protective of the pups that they have. So I mentioned earlier that the females can, in fact, like retract their pseudopenis. So if males trying to mate with them that they don't want to mate with them, normally they can shoot them away anyway, but they can also retract it, making it even more difficult for the male to do anything. Not to mention that general intercourse with a hyena is incredibly difficult. I've seen it described as like, trying to insert something into a sock. Like it's, you know, that kind of complicated. There's also the fact that it is such a long passageway that if she does mate with a male that she doesn't want to mate with, all she has to do is pee and it'll flush her system. So she has the ability, unlike many, 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 many mammals, to be incredibly, incredibly selective, incredibly picky. 
and incredibly aggressive to ensure that her choices are her choices and that her children have the best chance. Which in turn, if the children now have the best chance, that means the species has the best chance. Make sense? And so, of course, it, it gets passed on because, I mean, that's just evolution. Yeah. Whatever like, you want to say. Let's look at the counter of this. So imagine you're a female with limited eggs and you aren't aggressive. And just any old hyena ends up having babies from your only eggs. Yeah. Or, or you're not aggressive at a uh, kill site. And so your pups aren't getting first eat. Yeah. So that aggression, you can start to see where, wow, actually that aggression is actually really incredibly important. When they, when they have packs of like over a hundred and they, they eat what a third of her body weight in meat a day. Yeah. And you know, they have a dead zebra. Like that's not actually much to go around. It sure seems like it when you have a huge kill, but they got to be careful. That's the thing about natural selection that can get kind of tricky. I think a lot of people look at it as if, if it's there, that means it's there for a reason. And that it can be the case sometimes. Sometimes it's an indirect reason. Sometimes it's that no pressure has been significant enough to get rid of it. Sometimes it's that there hasn't been a significant enough change in, in reproductive strategies or amounts or gene swapping it, it's not always because something is like super vital in a purpose. However, in this case, in a really roundabout way, I mean, these are at least some of the, the best ideas um, about about why this takes place, why why this structure, why this kind of interaction. But I, uh, I for one, think it's kind of fascinating. So to quickly sum it up, because I know that this is kind of complicated, you know, it, it, it might feel better if if you can kind of connect a lot of these odd things like like the pseudo penis and and the aggression and really it seems like there's multiple facets of natural selection at play here and um yeah in summary the the aggression is necessary because the young would not be able to survive if they did not have an advocate so if in a way, if you think about the, the aggression, you know, at first you might say, oh, wow, I mean, that's that's vile. I mean, look at how aggressive these these female hyenas are, which first off is a bit sexist. But also it's it's um, it's vital. They're they're good moms. They are being a good parent. That aggression ensures the health and the survival of their children who might be born with teeth and they might be born aggressive but they are truly helpless, helpless until sexual maturity. I mean, just imagine. And so they are fighting, fighting for their children. And, and the pseudo penis portion of everything, you know, for some reason, people want to look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's just disgusting. Yet they're not looking at the male and going, oh my gosh, that's disgusting. They have a penis. So again, a little, a little sexist on the towards towards hyenas, but um, it's also a fascinating example of natural selection in in a a female's ability to make choice, a, a female's ability to control hyenas on a in a very real way just completely smash the patriarchy. They they take charge. They are in control. And and what 
what that allows them to do is to ensure that only the best of the best have access to their eggs. It's all about the children. It's all about the species. It's all about what's best, best providing, best use of energy. And um, while they might not be directly you know, connected, that they are in a way. And I, I don't know, I can't help but, um, I can't help but look at hyenas, not as, not as gross scavengers, but as extraordinary parents. One thing that we also kind of skipped over, uh, in regards to the males is so, um, and, and, and kind of in this whole sociality piece here, the males when they reach a certain age, they leave, they leave the uh, clan that they were born into and they have to find a new clan. And so when they enter a new clan, assuming that they can be accepted, I mean, they're, they're beaten and bit on and, and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, but if they stick around, it's sort of like a, a test of loyalty. Uh, you know, are you going to stick around? Are you going to be a part of our group? And even that in a way is like, look, we have kids here. Uh, are you really going to stick around? Are you really going to be a part of this this clan? Are you going to be a part of this community? Um, and and that's that's kind of fascinating in itself. Um, but that's in part why I mean you know a male joins a new group and they're they're the lowest rank of the lowest rank. They're they're ranking lower than the lowest ranking female or the lowest ranking male that is already there. You know they they for them it's not about. Um, power it's about uh it's kind of about loyalty i mean yeah in a way they kind of remind me of uh what's his name on game of thrones and and really genuinely very much so remind me of him but uh nevertheless hyenas are truly truly underrated as uh an organism how do hyenas impact the ecosystems they live in? Well, they uh, are really quite important. They're the most abundant large carnivores on Africa, and they're second in body size only to lions on the whole continent. So um, they help maintain healthy antelope populations all over the continent where um, people haven't totally um, taken over altogether. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're the, the cleaner uppers, of course, of the ecosystem. So they will um, take care of anything that they find lying around if they're hungry enough. And so, you know, they'll they'll clean up dead things, and they can even eat things like anthrax-laden carcasses and not even wow. experience indigestion. I mean, it's amazing what they can what they can tolerate. Wow. How about how about impacts on hyenas? You know, from from people. I mean, how are their populations looking? Well, like pretty much everything, uh, certainly like all other large carnivores, um, numbers of hyenas are, are tending to go down mainly due to habitat loss, the you know, natural habitat loss. Um, but hyenas are remarkably adaptable. They're very plastic relative to any other carnivore I can think of. And they even live in cities. They coexist with people in cities in Ethiopia, for example, where the people believe that hyenas eat evil spirits. And so they like to have hyenas around. And so... You know, the hyenas are less affected than many other carnivores, and they're considered a species of least concern by the 
IUCN, mm -hmm. but um, their behavior, their physiology, many different aspects of their biology change when they are exposed to high levels of anthropogenic activity. They become more nocturnal and more secretive and they're quieter. They tend to hang out more in thickets than in open areas just to avoid people. So, you know, they, it has a negative effect on them in general. So when you pile on on top of like natural concerns for mortality, there's also very real risk to their population. Some of the very standard ones like habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, some are poisoning, putting cyanide on a carcass so that when the hyenas come up and eat it, they end up dying right there in the spot. I would say that with anything, not just hyenas, but any, any animal, especially ones that are portrayed negatively, that itself puts a risk to their population. Oh yeah, just right off the bat. Because if people look at something as expendable, not desirable, not something to be around. Then it becomes expendable, like it becomes people expendable. poisoning them. Yeah, exactly, that's just, that's how it works. And so my hope is that by flipping the script a little bit here, acknowledging the reality that sometimes is not super pretty, but also unveiling the truth behind some of the myths that we can start to look at hyenas in a different light and see that for all it's worth, they're worth a lot. Well, I think the one big obstacle to conserving members of the hyena family is that people think of them as awful sort of skulking, carrion eating animals that aren't very nice as, as we talked about in the beginning. And that, that negative image, you know, it's been most recently perpetuated yet again by another Disney movie, the new version of The Lion King. Mm -hmm. Those things actually are um, very, very detrimental and make it very hard to conserve hyenas. So our message is, um, gee, you know, hyenas really don't do very much damage to people or their livestock. Uh, so uh, might be um, better all the way around if people could actually, you know, coexist with the animals a little bit better. That would sure be, that would sure make uh, life easier for the hyenas. What we're finding right now in Kenya is that often there are mass poisoning events. If a hyena kills a goat or a cowboy, you know, then uh, the local people saturate a carcass with a very bad insecticide and the hyenas all eat it and they kill over dead right there. So do jackals and cheetahs and everything else wow. that eats these things. So it's, you know, Poison is not the answer. That is definitely an important conservation take-home message. Nature needs scavengers, man. Yeah. Oh, just wait till we get to the dung beetle episode. <laughs> it's going to blow your mind. Those guys are really cool. They're really, really cool. <laughs> that was trippy. Like, I kind of want a dung beetle tattoo now. Not going to lie. I've got the bug. No pun intended. Oh, gosh. It's one of those days. Here's the thing, no matter how you look at it, hyenas are really, truly amazing. I mean, the, 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 the fact that they persist, that they exist, and, and, and the fact that they are as um, small as they are and kind of helpless in a way individually. I mean, they can hunt individually and stuff, but, but in comparison to other animals that are much larger and things, the fact that they are the most successful carnivore, that, that these smallish 
predators, you know, can group up in such large groups and have this fission fusion society and, and are so good at solving problems and, and puzzles and having a range of ideas and, and creativity. Um, they, they are just, they're, they're awesome. Like they are awe inspiring. Awesome. And if you can't see that, you got to go back and listen to this episode. <laughs> or you got to look into the research that Dr. K. Holcamp does. You, you've got to check out her site. You need to look at the, the work that her students do. There's a lot of them on social media. You can, you can find their stuff there. But, um, I mean, really, really, truly, I, th- I think it's fair to say that uh, best carnivore on the planet Hyenas, you you take the title. It is time that hyenas earn their rightful place on the throne. Thank you for listening today. This has been The Wildlife with Devin and Richard Boker. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're interested in supporting us like those wonderful people we listed off at the beginning of the episode, you can do that as a as a full member at patreon.com slash the wildlife. Or you can do that with a one-time contribution uh, at paypal.me slash the wildlife. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay safe. Be healthy. Get outside. Ask questions. Be curious. And uh, tune in next time.